Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for every word that is delivered to us in your word. We're thankful for especially sometimes these, these stories, Father, that, that are told by Jesus that, that tug at our heartstrings, especially on a day like this when uh, thoughts of being a father are near and dear to us. And so as we approach this text, Father, what we're asking for as your children is for you to help us to, to understand it anew, to hear it anew, to, to study it anew in ways, Father, that, that make it fresh upon our hearts and minds and souls as we find ourselves in the, in the middle of this, this, this great, this great parable. Father, we, we pray for the eyes that see and the ears that hear. We pray to, to, to not only have you magnified in our hearts and minds, Father, but also our, our understanding of your nature and your character. And we pray, Father, to have the kind of response to that, that knowledge that makes us better people, that makes us better children, greater light and, and sharper salt in, in this community. So again, Father, we ask for your blessing, and we ask for it in the name of Jesus. And all the church said, Amen. All over the city, as we've been talking about uh, all day, uh, people are celebrating Father's Day, and it, 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 we just need to ask the question again. It's, it's more rhetorical than anything else, because we've looked at what it means for God to be a father a lot, but does the concept of God as father change us as believers? Does it keep us from praying like pagans to know that we pray to our Father who art in heaven? Do we, does it change not only our prayer life, but does it change the way that we relate to, to our brothers and sisters in the church? Does it, does it change the way that we think about the things that our Father has entrusted us with as, as steward? That's a very big question. And one of the places in the Bible where God is likened to a father is the famous parable, the famous story of the prodigal son. The story tells us tremendous things about what it means for God to be our father, but it also tells us on the flip side, it tells us much about what it means to be a son. This word son shows up all over this story. In verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two what? Sons, verse 19, the son, the prodigal says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your what? Your son. Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Son is an extremely important word for us to understand this parable. Now the father says sort of an odd thing in verse 24. He says, my son was dead. Did this father think that his son was literally and physically dead? Probably not at all. So what did he mean? Well, we, we notice that twice in the parable, 
The younger son, the one called the prodigal, makes mention of the fact that he's not worthy to be called, to be called the father's son. Now, why is this such an, uh, an important aspect of, of the son's reconnecting to the father and the son's speech? Well, it's because we not only learn some things about what it means for God to be our father, but also what it means for us to be his children, to be his sons, and to be his daughters. On being God's child, number one, being a son was about position and standing. It doesn't carry nearly enough of the same meaning today as it did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, sonship identified your status, identified your prominence in a village or with the family. And this boy has lost this status. He's correct when he says he's no longer worthy to be the son of this father. That's true enough. The father did say that this son had been dead. How so? Well, I think the understanding comes in, in really our, our delving in and understanding better what it means to be a son, which leads to point two. A son carried on the name of the family. In those days, a name meant everything. Think of Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is more desirable than great wine. And to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than what? Fine perfume. Exactly. A name today in our culture, in our culture, is used to distinguish us from other people. My name is Mark Absher, and so that you know that I'm not this guy sitting near me by, by the name of, of, of uh, Jeff Glass, who is not to be confused by his name with the man who's sitting over here whose last name is blank. You get the picture of what names mean today. But in the ancient world, it was more. The name was what the family banked on. The name was a reflection of what the family believed in and what they stood for. And as a son with the family name, you represented that family. And you basically carried that family with you everywhere you went as a son because you had the name. But not only was it that, but number three, a son carried on the family business. Now, we've, we've talked over the years about some of the inheritance laws of, of ancient Israel, and there is, by today's standards, at least standards in the Western world, some inequity in how all of this was handled. The older son, as you know, got how many parts of the inheritance? Two, right? And the other sons received... The other sons received... And the daughters received... Nada. The boys got some, the girls didn't get anything. Now, it appears unfair until you understand it in its context. This family, or, or any family in the ancient world, would not survive unless it was a cohesive unit, that it really was, in every sense of the word, a community. You wouldn't make it physically on your own because you would be vulnerable to enemies. Life was hard. There were lots of things that had to be done by many people during the day to ensure the survival of the family. You would also have a hard go of it politically because your vote didn't mean much alone. And you had a terrible time emotionally because you had no one to support you in times of trouble. During this period of time, family was everything. Not today. It's a little bit different. When a family member passes away, it goes all to their children equally, who later divided equally between their children, and so on and so forth. And eventually, the wealth disappears because it has been divided up so much. I've told you this before. I'm a seventh-generation Texan. I can trace our bloodline to the 300 Germans who settled in that area uh, around Brenham. And to this day, my wh what we like to call the ancestral bed and breakfast is uh, 
you know, the home of Elijah Alcorn, who landed in Texas and uh, developed that area. It is a bed. His house is a bed and breakfast in Brenham. And at one time, that home was surrounded by enormous amounts of land that through the generations have been so divided that it has disappeared from our family. I don't have a clue as to who owns it. But that's okay. Because today our wealth is generated in different ways. It's much more liquid. Our wealth is in cash and stocks and bonds and other kinds of investments that can be moved easily. But in the ancient world, wealth, in the ancient culture, wealth was in the land. And wealth was in the animals, which were a means of production. And a family's survival in the ancient world depended on a family's land staying intact. And the oldest son, the oldest son, kept the, mature, the majority of that wealth accumulated and together. Why? Because the survival of the family depended on it. And, and so when you think about it, there is this fourth thing which... To be a son was like being in an office. Now this is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and 4 something that is absolutely stunning. He says beginning in verse 26, you are all what? You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs. You're heirs. According to the promise, verse 1 of chapter 4, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Now, in the ancient world, the gods were the kings and everyone else, you know, were just basically low-level humans. They were all the subjects. And then all of a sudden, Yahweh, the creator God of the universe, the most powerful being that humans would encounter, says, I'm your father. And all of you are my sons. Now, you know, we we read that in the modern world, and it does not even come close to the impact that that had on people who heard it in the ancient world. As a son, through Jesus, you become an heir of all God's things. Your status completely changes whether you're male or female, which brings up kind of an interesting aside. You know, we've heard for years the arguments against the gender-based language of the Bible. The feminists have just really hated all of the masculine pronouns and all of the different ways that, that uh, a masculine patriarchal society was, is, is uh, expressed in, in the biblical text. But believe it or not, the femi- feminists are trying to erase one of the metaphors of the Bible that they are most blessed by. The fact that in the language and in the culture of this ancient world, to to become an heir was just a tremendous thing for a woman. And in Galatians 3, Paul writes that in the kingdom of God there's no male or female because all are in Christ. And this means that God loves everyone like a son. That there is no difference in Christ. All are loved by God. And the most powerful way that you could say that in the ancient world was to say to a woman, 
God loves you like a son. You're heirs too. God will grant you, even you, everything. And women in the ancient world, they would hear that, and then they'd just fall over fainting. So powerful was that. It was unbelievable. And so women should not be upset that they are, as Paul uses the language, sons of God, any more than men should be agitated that they are the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Now that's especially true when we also realize that we're all stupid sheep. (laughs) Number five. Men as a bride, women as sons, but we're all sheep. I love the Bible. Number five, there is deep security in being a son. When anyone is adopted, the conferral of sonship is not gradual, but it's sudden. It's immediate. It is a sudden change, an immediate change in status. To be adopted means that you are no longer outside, but that you're on the inside. And the younger son of the story, the prodigal son, has forfeited his sonship. That's why he comes back in humility, asking to be like one of the hired men. And to do this, because in his humility, he is wanting to pay back the father every cent. And when he says that he's not worthy to be a son, it's true because he has repudiated it. But this father will have none of it. And he says, put the best robe on him, which would have been the father's robe, because the father will always have the best robe in the house. And he says, put sandals on his feet, which would have demonstrated that he was a free man in his father's house and not a slave nor a hired man. And the signet ring on his finger meant that he could represent the family in business once again. In these days, no one signed, in in those days, no one signed anything. What they did is they stamped documents with their signet ring. And we say to God, we're not worthy, and that's true. And there are times, because of the way that we're made up emotionally, at least some of us, we want to pay God back everything. I'm going to make it up to God. I'm going to live this kind of life. But God says, no. He says, remember Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. You have the full rights of a son. You have this secure position that should change your life. And it's very much unlike the position of, say, an an employee. To be a son is completely different from being an employee. Unfortunately, there's not much security in being an employee. When an employee messes up big, what happens? He or she gets fired. But this is not so with a son. You mess up, and what happens? You get more of the father's full attention. You get the father's full (laughs) attention. When my children, when they were young, would mess up, they didn't get less of me, they got more of me. When my children messed up, I didn't ignore them more, I had my eyes on them even more so because they had messed up. That's what it means to have the secure status of a son. When you mess up, it doesn't mean you have less, you have more. And to say that you're trying to become a Christian is to see yourself as a hired hand rather than the son. Which leads to the sixth thing. A son is granted intimate access to a father. A child has access you know, to the great heights in a house that no one else has, right? I've told you this before, uh, uh, or this story before, this illustration before. You know, if Ellen wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and says, uh, you know, I hear a funny noise. I say, well, go check it out. Or she wakes me up and she says, well, I'm thirsty. It's hot in this house. I could use a cup of water. What am I going to do? 
I go, honey, that's a great idea. Can you bring me some with ice in it as well? But if I hear one of my children when they were little crying out, Jessica or Jordan crying out for a cup of water, or crying out because they're scared, or Jessica comes stumbling into the room because she's upset about something, what do you, what do? You do? You, you get up, even if it means stubbing your toe on a chair. No one else gets through to you like a child. Now, understanding that God is our Father, does that do anything to your prayer life at all? And in the human world, when you adopt a little kiddo you love so much, you can't infuse your DNA into that child as much as you would love to, to do that very thing. But God can do that, and He does. God puts His DNA in us, in a manner of speaking, when He puts His Holy Spirit in you. And I love this text from the great 8th chapter of Romans where Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What Spirit? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Number seven, a son has hope. What does it mean when the Bible makes reference to the new heavens and the new earth? Well, it, it means a lot of things, but at least this, that God is in the process of getting a place ready where there's no disease, no pain, no suffering or death. It is a place where the fallen earth and the new heaven and everything comes together and we're with God. And that is your inheritance and mine. And we'll rule with God. Going back to Romans 18, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, that the worst thing that could ever happen to you, and not just on one day, but a, a whole series of days, even years of this, this same struggle, the thing that knocks you off of your, your, your feet, the thing that takes your breath away, and you don't know if you'll ever catch it again, the thing that makes you sad, the thing that is your agony, the thing that causes suffering in your mind and keeps you up at night. And again, sometimes short, but a lot of times not. The thing that keeps driving at you night after night after night after night. Paul says that that kind of a suffering, that present suffering, what you're experiencing now, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Why? Because we're sons. We're his children. Paul is saying that there. Paul is saying uh, that in suffering, he thinks about his coming inheritance. He thinks about what it is that God is going to bless him with, because he's an heir of all things. And he thinks about his coming inheritance to the point that he can handle anything in this life. And what Paul is saying is that that's a product of being a son of God. And just a couple of verses from the one we just read, he says in verse 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, which is the Aramaic way. It's, it's you know, we don't have a very good way of translating it in, into English. It has the emotion of the word daddy, but not quite that familiar. It is, it is a word that carries the emotion of daddy. It's, it's like saying, Abba, daddy, father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit 
that we're God's children. You know, one of the things that the Spirit of God does is help confirm the fact that you're an heir, that you're a son. Verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. Well, one last thing to think about this evening. Sons of God form a unique and distinct community. How does all of this understanding of, sh- of sonship, that we're sons of God, that He's our Father, we're not just creatures and He's the Creator, but over and over and over again, and this is one of the ways that, God, that, uh, that Christ was in what He said about God was shocking. He not only referred to God as His Father, but a Father in general. So how does all of this understanding that we're the sons and God is the Father change us in the church? Well, the, the, Bible uses, the Bible uses a very special term to describe the relationship that brothers have in the church. Do you, do you remember what it is? Brotherly love. The Greek word, Philadelphia. The problem is when we, when we think of, of brotherly love, you know, you know, what do we think of? Well, if you're in my generation and you sort of came of age in the early 70s and you kind of remember the 60s, what do you think of? Well, you think, well, let's, you know, let's listen to Janis Joplin's songs. Let's, let's go to Woodstock. That's not what it meant at all in the ancient world. When they heard the word Philadelphia, it applied to, to non-family me- as it was applied to non-family members, it, it meant something radical. It meant something new. In, in the second century, after the church has come about, there's a man by the name of Lucian of Samosata who, who really despised Christians. Just hated them. Thought they were just terrible, terrible, terrible terrible human beings on the earth. And he wrote a little book entitled The Death of Peregrinus. And in it he writes these sarcastic words about the disciples of Jesus. He writes, and I quote, You see these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike regarding them merely as common property. End of quote. What Lucian recognized among the members of the early church was that to be in community meant that there were claims on your life. It was radical in the pagan world to think this way, to to perceive other people this way, let alone to see it happening right there in front of you. You know, there's a saying that we hear quite a bit at times, you know, mainly around the holiday seasons of the year when families are getting together. Families sometimes are referred to as, as dysfunctional. It's time for the dysfunctional family to get together. And the saying that we hear a lot is, you know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's true. And that's true in church families as well. When you come to San Antonio, as a member of the Church of Christ, you can pick which one to attend. You can choose one that's closest to you. You can choose one based on the preacher. You can choose one based on the way that they worship. You can choose the one that your kids like best. The one thing that you never choose, the one thing that you don't choose, is who is in the church. The dominant relational theme in the New Testament for the church is not friendship, but family. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, for the longest time, we have believed, or I shouldn't say we have believed, but we've acted as if every you know relationship in church was to be based on friendship. And so that's why you can have some people sitting on one side of an auditorium and those on the other because of that friendship issue. Something happened that caused the friendship to dissolve. And now they can no longer be together and they no longer want to be together. They want to have as much separation as possible. You know, when you treat somebody as a brother and sister, you know, you may get bent out of shape every once in a while, but you don't stop being family, do you? You may stop being friends. But in a family, you never stop being brothers and sisters. And what gives the church a distinct profile in the community is the unique relationship that exists between people who are as different from each other as night and day, but who call each other brother and sister and relate to one another on the basis of brotherly love. And do you know how restoration was able to take place for the prodigal son? How he was able to be reinstated in the family it was at the expense of the older son. The younger son has taken his third of the estate and spent it. It's gone. And now if the younger son is to really be reinstated to the family, the wealth will have to be redistributed again. And this is why the older brother in the story is angry. You want to hear some good news? Our older brother... Jesus Christ is not like that. It was at Christ's expense. He's the one that paid in order for us to be reconciled to, to our Father in Heaven. He forfeited for a time His place at the right hand of God in order for us to find our place there again. You know, there is so much rich imagery in the Bible of God as a Father to us. Equally rich in, in many ways is the imagery of what it means to be His Son. Whether we're male or female, to know that, that He loves us as a Son in the ancient world and all that that entailed, all that that meant. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And we invite anyone who has never made that decision the decision to become God's son, his heir, co-heir with Christ, an heir of God, by, by faith, by trusting in him, by believing that Jesus is the Messiah, by believing that, that Jesus died on the cross and that that has, has an effect in all of, all of history, including your own personal history, which means that when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, it changed your life, at least the possibility of it. That because of what He did 2,000 years ago as the Son of God, by taking on your sins, by, make, by paying the price that you by all accounts should pay in order for you to be adopted in through faith, by repentance, your, your sins being washed away at baptism, by confessing that, 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 that He is Lord, all of these things, you can change that relationship tonight. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. They would love to talk to you about, about the opportunity tonight to make God your forever Father and for you to receive every right, every blessing that comes to His children.
sons and daughters of God. Let's stand and sing together. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me.